Recorded live. Hey guys, it's Chris here. It's another episode of Supertheism, and I'll be continuing my reading of Drake's work, Thomas Jefferson Was Wrong, A Complete Refutation of the Enlightenment. And it looks like the place I left off and that I'll begin here is uh, it's called Establishment versus Pluralism. So it starts off, it says, uh, Since the dawn of mankind, it has been understood that a people derive their identity, unity, culture, and purpose from the underlining and established race and philosophy of their land. Since the Protestant Reformation, the Roman Catholic Church's counter-reformation has done everything it can to attack this principle so that the power and influence of the Protestant established nations would crumble and the Roman Church would again gain influence in the West. When the Protestant Reformation first gained the victory in Northern European nations in the 16th century, their intention was not pluralism, and the view of the secular state, as it is understood here in America, was abhorred. They advocated one true Protestant religion to be held among all. In the Augsburg Confession, 1530 A.D., preface to the Emperor Charles V, we read, quote, Most invincible emperor, Caesar Augustus, most clement lord, inasmuch as your imperial majesty has summoned a diet of the empire here at Augsburg to deliberate concerning measures against the Turk, that most atrocious, hereditary, and ancient enemy of the Christian name and religion, in what way, namely, effectually to withstand his furor and assaults by strong and lasting military provision, and then also concerning dissensions in the matter of our holy religion and Christian faith, that in this matter of religion the opinions and judgments of the parties might be heard in each other's presence, and considered and weighed among ourselves in mutual charity, leniency, and kindness, in order that, after the removal and correction of such things as have been treated and understood in a different manner in the writings on either side, these matters may be settled and brought back to one simple truth and Christian concord, that for the future one pure and true religion may be embraced and maintained by us, that as we all are under one Christ and do battle under him, so we may be able also to live in unity and concord in the one Christian church. And inasmuch as we, the undersigned elector and princes, with others joined with us, have been called to the aforesaid diet the same as the other electors, princes, and estates, in obedient compliance with the imperial mandate, we have promptly come to Augsburg, and what we do not mean to say as boasting, we were among the first to be here. Accordingly, since even here at Augsburg, at the very beginning of the Diet, your imperial majesty caused to be proposed to the electors, princes, and other estates of the empire, amongst other things, that the several estates of the empire, on the strength of the imperial edict, should set forth and submit their opinions and judgments in the German and the Latin language, and since on the ensuing Wednesday answer was given to your imperial majesty, after due deliberation, that we would submit the articles of our confession for our side on next Wednesday. Therefore, in obedience to your imperial majesty's wishes, we offer, in this matter of religion, the confession of our preachers and of ourselves, showing what manner of doctrine from the holy scriptures and the pure word of God has been up to this time set forth in our lands, 
dukedoms, dominions, and cities, and taught in our churches. And if the other electors, princes, and estates of the empire will, according to the said imperial proposition, present similar writings to wit in, in Latin and German, giving their opinions in this matter of religion, we, with the princes and friends aforesaid, here before your imperial majesty, our most clement lord, are prepared to confer amicably concerning all possible ways and means, in order that we may come together as far as this may be honorably done, and the matter between us on both sides being peacefully discussed without offensive strife, the dissension, by God's help, may be done away and brought back to one true accordant religion. For as we are all under one Christ and do battle under him, we ought to confess the one Christ after the tenor of your imperial majesty's edict, and everything ought to be conducted according to the truth of God. And this, is, and this it is what, with most fervent prayers, we entreat of God. So, uh... Are we supposed to have freedom of religion here? Is freedom of religion a good thing? Is all this religious pluralism a good thing? Is this you find this in the Bible anywhere? In the in the biblical Torah system was was freedom of religion allowed? Uh no. It was not allowed. And it's only created chaos and uh strife and dissension, and, I mean, literally nothing good has come out of freedom of religion. So, this continues, however, as regards the rest of the electors, princes, and estates who constitute the other part, if no progress should be made, nor some result be attained by this treatment of the cause of religion after the manner in which your imperial majesty has widely held that it should be dealt with and treated namely by such mutual presentation of writings and calm conferring together among ourselves, we at least leave with you a clear testimony that we here in no wise are holding back from anything that could bring about Christian concord, such as could be affected with God and a good conscience, as also your imperial majesty and, next, the other electors and estates of the empire, and all who are moved by sincere love and zeal for religion, and who will give an impartial hearing to this matter, will graciously deign to take notice and to understand this from this confession of ours and of our associates. Your Imperial Majesty also, not only once but often, graciously signify to the electors, princes, and estates of the empire, and at the Diet of Spires held A.D. 1526, according to the form of your imperial instruction and commission given and prescribed, caused it to be stated and publicly proclaimed that your majesty, in dealing with this matter of religion, for certain reasons which were aligned in your majesty's name, was not willing to decide and could not determine anything, but that your majesty would diligently use your majesty's office with the Roman pontiff for the convening of a general council. The same matter was thus publicly set forth at great length a year ago at the last diet which met at Spires. There your Imperial Majesty, through His Highness Ferdinand, King of Bohemia and Hungary, our friend and Clement Lord, as well as through the orator and Imperial Commissioners, caused this, among other things, to be submitted, 
that your imperial majesty had taken notice of and pondered the resolution of your majesty's representative in the empire and of the president and imperial counselors and the legates from other estates convened at Radisbon concerning the calling of a council and that your imperial majesty also judged it to be expedient to convene a council and that your imperial majesty did not doubt the Roman pontiff could be induced to hold a general council because the matters to be adjusted between your imperial majesty and the Roman pontiff were nearing agreement and Christian reconciliation. Therefore, your imperial majesty himself signified that he would endeavor to secure the said chief pontiff's consent for convening, together with your imperial majesty, such general counsel to be published as soon as possible by letters that were to be sent out. If the outcome, therefore, should be such that the differences between us and the other parties in the matter of religion should not be amicably and in charity settled, then here, before your imperial majesty, we make the offer in all obedience, in addition to what we have already done, that we will all appear and defend our cause in such a general, free Christian council for the convening of which there has always been accordant action and agreement of votes and all the imperial diets held during your majesty's reign on the part of the electors, princes, and other estates of the empire to the assembly of this general council and at the same time to your imperial majesty we have, even before this, in due manner and form of law, addressed ourselves and made appeal in this matter by far the greatest and gravest. To this appeal, both to your imperial majesty and to a council, we still adhere. Neither do we intend, nor would it be possible for us to relinquish it by this or any other document, unless the matter between us and the other side, according to the tenor of the latest imperial citation, should be amicably and charitably settled allayed and brought to Christian concord, and regarding this, we even here solemnly and publicly testify, end quote. So it says, uh, in Thomas Paine's Common Sense, page 46, he says, quote, As to religion, I hold it to be the indispensable duty of all governments to protect all conscientious professors thereof, and I know of no other business which government have to do therewith. Let a man throw aside that narrowness of soul, that selfishness of principle, which the niggards of all professions are so unwilling to part with, and he will be at once delivered of his fears on that head. Suspicion is the companion of mean souls, and the bane of all good society. For myself, I fully and conscientiously believe that it is the will of the Almighty that there should be a diversity of religious opinions among us. Really, huh? Really, Thomas Paine, is that right? It affords a larger field for our Christian kindness. Were we all of one way of thinking, our religious dispositions would want matter for probation, and on this liberal principle, I look on the various denominations among us to be like children of the same family, differing only in what is called their Christian names, end quote. <laughs> wow. Paine's view is the exact opposite view of Protestant Christianity. And make no mistake, the Roman Church has for centuries been the most intolerant of all Christian com communions. In their famous papal bull, In Coena Domini, the Roman Pope boasted of such re religious dominance over all nations that in 1770 it had to be repealed due to the gross offense it caused. 
So what happened? The change in the views of many Catholics, the Counter-Reformation, the primary order created by this Reformation was the Society of Jesus, the Jesuits. Strangely, they were known for their secular, humanistic educators. Their crowning achievement was the philosopher René Descartes, who was trained at the Jesuit College Royal Henry Legrand at La Fleche. He is the father of modern secularism. The Enlightenment, or the idea of secular society, is a way to control people by the Roman Catholic Church. Their primary idea was to destroy the established Protestant nations through secular humanistic philosophy. The Roman Church lost control over the Western world, and the Pope was even later usurped by Napoleon. Secularism is a way to reintroduce Roman Catholicism into Western society, because the centuries that followed the Reformation all understood that Roman Catholicism was a lethal, power-hungry religion that could not be allowed into a civilized nation. Secularism allowed them back into nations where they previously were barred by the power of law. Now with this secular system in place, they could grow again, increase their wealth, and conspire to gain power for the Pope again. Case in point is René Descartes. He started generations of philosophers that tried to develop ways to get knowledge without appealing to religion. Thus, the age of secular philosophy began, and Protestant nations that once taught their people the Bible and ruled them under its laws were usurped through infiltration, and Western civilization left the door wide open again for the Roman beast. John Locke's secular views of government were all inspired from René Descartes. However, even Locke knew that unbridled pluralism was madness, and he even knew not to allow Romanism into society because, quote, that church can have no right to be tolerated by the magistrate, which is constituted upon such a bottom that all those who enter into it do thereby ipso facto deliver themselves up to the protection and service of another prince, a.k.a. the pope. For by this means, the magistrate would give way to the settling of a foreign jurisdiction in his own country and suffer his own people to be listed, as it were, for soldiers against his own government. Nor does the frivolous and fallacious distinction between the court and the church afford any remedy to this inconvenience, especially when both the one and the other are equally subject to the absolute authority of the same person who has not only power to persuade the members of his church to do whatsoever he lists, either as purely religious or in order thereunto, but can also enjoin it them on pain of eternal fire. It is ridiculous for anyone to profess himself to be a Mahometan, should be a Muslim, only in his religion, but in everything else a faithful subject to a Christian magistrate whilst at the same time he acknowledges himself bound to yield blind obedience to the Mufti of Constantinople, who himself is entirely obedient to the Ottoman emperor and frames the feigned oracles of that religion according to his pleasure. But this Mahometan, living amongst Christians, would yet more apparently renounce their government if he acknowledged the same person to be head of his church, who is the supreme magistrate in the state." End quote. The, idea, the whole idea that a nation should be obliged to no established religion and no principle of unity is completely absurd and comes straight out of the insanity of atheism. 
Even Locke understood this. Baptists, atheists, and most importantly, Romanists love it because it keeps them from being held accountable for their devilish deceits, and most importantly, the Roman Catholic Church can keep sucking society dry of their money as they hoard up riches for their beast. Deborah O'Malley wrote a fantastic summary of the debates in Virginia concerning the establishment principle and Thomas Jefferson's soon-to-dominate principles of pluralism. It is entitled, quote, The Dictates of Conscience, The Debate Over Religious Liberty in Revolutionary Virginia, Ashbrook State Statementship Thesis. O'Malley argues, quote, One may ask why, according to Jefferson, a man would want to establish a religion in the first place. Jefferson says that such men have, quote, impious presumptions, end quote, and that they want to have, quote, dominion over the faith of others, end quote. Actually, in the preface to the Augsburg Confession, when the kings of Northern Europe appealed to Charles, they sought to establish the Protestant religion to reject those that had dominion over their faith. I was raised in the United States, which is arguably the most pluralistic and disestablished nation ever to exist. I have, on my own, come to despise this system because I have lost everything through studying my way out of a few systems of theology. I was committed to one group who promised to fund my college expenses in exchange for certain services, and they refused to come through a month and a half before I graduated because I became convinced of certain Presbyterian doctrines. This spiraled my life into financial ruin, which resulted in the loss of everything I worked for in my entire adult life. Many other examples could be given. Western society has left the idea that the end of human society is a people with an identity and a culture flowing out of their race and religion to adopt the theory that the end of human society is business. They want to tolerate all religions and make the state secular because that is good business. Currently, America has no human identity, no culture, and now the businessmen have extreme power and they are using it to destroy the middle class. Didn't see that one coming, did we? God has turned our devices on ourselves and used the very things that we replaced him with to destroy us. Sound familiar? Just read your Old Testament. I hate living here because there is no nation, no people. This country is a business full of lost and confused individuals with so many religions around them, they don't know what to believe. Yep, I second that. Oh, let's see. So I'm going to skip ahead here to the next section. It's called Toleration Related to Human Nature. The great Calvinist Congregationalist John Cotton's limitation of government clearly shows that the Calvinist view of human nature, which sees men as totally depraved, is a strong basis of limited government. However, it also provides a strong basis for the establishment principle. I have touched on this issue a bit in the chapter on, on the separation of powers. O'Malley argues, quote, this raises an important question about Jefferson's view of human nature. Does he believe that this desire for power is an innate part of human nature, or does he think that just a few corrupt men have it? His opponents will argue that men have a depraved nature which makes government intervention in religious matters necessary. Yet, if man has an innate moral sense, why are some men led by corrupt desires, such as the desire to gain power over the rights of other men? Jefferson argues that these desires arise as a result of self-love, 
In this letter, he says, quote, Self-love, therefore, is no part of morality. Indeed, it is, actually, it is exactly its counterpart. It is the sole antagonist of virtue, leading us constantly by our propensities to self-gratification in violation of our moral duties to others. Take from man his selfish propensities, and he can have nothing to seduce him from the practice of virtue, end quote. Jefferson's problem is that this self-love is also the same basis for self-defense and the right to bear arms. However, we see Jefferson qualifying himself, quote, Society must place a check on the moral instinct of individuals because the moral senses of some are flawed and some men do not even have them at all. It is true they, the moral senses, are not planted in every man. Because there is no rule without exceptions, but it is false reasoning which converts exceptions into the general rule. The want or imperfection of the moral sense in some men, like the want or imperfection of the sense of sight and hearing in others, is no proof that it is a general characteristic of the species." Yeshua made it very clear that natural man is under a general rule, John 3.19, this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. O'Malley qualifies, quote, in this way, he, Jefferson, is saying that self-love is not necessarily evil. Though it causes some men to be immoral, it can still be used for good by inspiring these men to do good, end quote. O'Malley and Jefferson alike are completely confused. The Bible makes very clear why men act immoral, original sin. O'Malley says again, quote, Thus Jefferson believes that immoral people will not necessarily always act viciously out of self-love, end quote. Neither does the Calvinist. Total depravity does not mean that men are as evil as they could be. Robert Shaw defines total depravity, quote, The corruption of nature of which they speak is any deprivation of the soul or any essential attribute or the infusion of any positive evil. The confessions of the Reformers teach, quote, that original righteousness as a punishment of Adam's sin was lost, and by that defect the tendency to sin or corrupt disposition or corruption of nature is occasioned. Though they speak of original sin as being first negative, i.e. the loss of righteousness, and secondly, positive, or corruption of nature, yet by the latter, they state, is to be understood, not the infusion of anything in itself sinful, but an actual tendency or disposition to evil, resulting from the loss of righteousness, end quote. Another branch of original sin is the imputation of the guilt of Adam's first transgression. This is rejected by many who admit original corruption. By the imputation of Adam's first sin, it is not intended that his personal transgression becomes the personal transgression of his posterity, but that the guilt of his transgression is reckoned to their account. And it is only the guilt of his first sin, which was committed by him as a public representative, that is imputed to his posterity, and not the guilt of his future sins, after he had ceased to act in that character. The grounds of this imputation are that Adam was both the natural root and the federal head or representative of all his posterity. 
The former is the only ground mentioned in this section of the Confession, probably because the representative character of Adam in the Covenant of Works has not yet been brought into view, but in the succeeding chapter this is distinctly recognized. And both in the larger Catechism and in the shorter, the representative character of Adam in the covenant made with him is explicitly assigned as the principal ground of the imputation of the guilt of his first sin to all his posterity. We do not see how the universal corruption of mankind can be accounted for without admitting that they are involved in the guilt of his first transgression. It must be some sin which God punishes with the deprivation of original righteousness, and that can be no other than the first sin of Adam. The doctrine of imputation is clearly taught in Scripture, particularly in Romans 5. It is so plainly stated, so often repeated, and so formally proved that it must be acknowledged to be the doctrine of the Apostle. In support of this doctrine, we might appeal to the universality of the effects of sin, especially to the death of infants. The judgment that we are guilty is transferred to us from the actual guilt of the one representative, even as the judgment that we are righteous is transferred to us from the actual righteousness of the other representative. We are sinners in virtue of one man's disobedience, independently of our own personal sins, and we are righteous in virtue of another's obedience, independently of our own personal qualifications. Adam is not merely the corrupt parent of a corrupt offspring, whose sin because of the depravity wherewith he has tainted all the families of the earth, but who have sinned in him to use the language of our old divines as their federal head, as the representative of a covenant which God made with him and through him with all his posterity, end quote. So the next section, pluralistic toleration versus unified religion. O'Malley says, quote, First, Jefferson believes that the civil magistrate's powers do not extend at all into the field of opinion. This is because the end of government has nothing to do with the shaping of men's opinions, end quote. This is utter nonsense. Every government shapes the people to believe certain things. I was brainwashed with a 2,400-year-old refuted Greek theory called atomism growing up, so the state could not could mold me into a complete atheist, and it worked well. I often questioned my parents on dinosaurs and the age of the earth because what I was hearing at school and what I was hearing at Sunday school and the Lutheran church I grew up in were very different. James R. Wilson says in his Prince Messiah's Claims, essay number two, quote, the interests of personal morality, social order, and Christianity, all that respects the improvement and comfort of our race in this life, all that prepares for immortal glory, are intimately connected with the form, the principle, and the administration of civil government. One of the great advantages derived from the reading of history is the instruction received relative to the moral influence which different forms and diversified administrations of magistracy have on the citizens, end quote. The First Amendment of the Bill of Rights operates on the preconceived idea that there is no true religion, as John, as John Locke argued for in his Letters on Toleration. This has proved to produce a comprehensive atheistic nihilism am among the populace of the United States. Americans, for the most part, and even most Christians, could care less about the philosophical truth of things. Quote, 
According to Jefferson, the only acts which the government can control are those that harm others. The legitimate powers of government extend to such acts only as are injurious to others. But it does me no injury for my neighbor to say there are 20 gods or no god. End quote. Uh-oh. That was a no-no there from Jefferson. I have touched on this before, but it needs repeating. Years ago, I was committed to one group who promised to fund my college expenses in exchange for certain services, and they refused to come through a month and a half before I graduated because I became convinced of certain Presbyterian doctrines. This spiraled my life into financial ruin, which resulted in the loss of everything I worked for in my entire adult life. I know of others who have been persecuted for being Sabbatarian, but I am a Sabbatarian, and I have had to take huge debts, debts which resulted in the loss of a career and my health, because this society's economy, ipso facto, rejects the Sabbatarian's rights to practice his religion. I believe that general work and business on the Sabbath is prohibited, and because of this, I have been refused employment on scores of occasions. I have filled out or sent thousands of resumes and applications to employers during the last semester of college and after I graduated. The only jobs I could get were positions that paid little more than minimum wage. I had to get multiple jobs to survive, which ended up destroying my health. I know many other people who believe the same thing and have been threatened to lose their jobs if they don't work on the Sabbath. No nation allows freedom of all religion. Its people, through their own actions, develop economies that inherently prejudice the religion of others. Yep. <sighs> O'Malley summarized Jefferson, quote, Truth does not need the assistance of government to prevail. Locke also argues that truth can stand on its own, quote, for truth certainly would do well enough if she were once left to shift for herself, end quote. Chastity does not need the assistance of government. Does that mean we make all sexual activity legal? How about incest, bestiality, pederasty, child pornography, child molestation? Sobriety does not need the assistance of government. Does that mean that we should legalize all drugs, crack, PCP, LSD? Secondly, he is assuming that men naturally seek truth. Messiah said above that men love darkness rather than light. Does error thrive or die with no authority to restrain it? It thrives. Just take a look around in our culture. Maybe my location is prejudiced, but I see the most idiotic, mindless nonsense fly for the biblical religion on TV and in my city, and it is everywhere. Swoon, people convulsing on the floor, charlatans waving their hands over huge crowds of people as they swoon backwards and even vomiting, laughing, and barking, quote, in the spirit, end quote. Obviously, truth does, does need government assistance because no one knows what to believe. O'Malley responds, quote, it only needs conversation between individuals since, quote, free argument and debate, end quote, are its weapons, end quote. Interesting, because that is exactly the opposite of what goes on here. Secondly, it was the established nation of England that invited the best theologians in the world to debate theology in Westminster Abbey, as have all Christian kings during religious crises. They host the best debates. In my city, I made effort to contact scores of the pastors to discuss the issues of the Trinity and the original Nicene Creed, 
and not one of them would speak with me. They must be forced to be held accountable for what they teach, and unless we have an established state to do it, these know-nothing predators that call themselves Christian clergy will continue to prey upon society as the government allows them a long leash to do it. O'Malley says, quote, There will certainly be many people who will believe false things, but they will become fewer as enlightenment spreads through free debate, end quote. <laughs> That's a laugh. First, I have tried to get these people to debate here, and they will not do it. Second, they do not know what to debate. The history of Christianity, especially the Reformed and Eastern Church's history, is almost unknown in my city. They need a shepherd, and this system eliminates the benefit that professional state-sponsored theologians could provide. Thomas Jefferson said, quote, Difference of opinion is advantageous in religion. The several sects perform the office of a censor morum of each other, end quote. Paul already admitted that factions were necessary in God's decree. 1 Corinthians 11.18, quote, For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you, end quote. However, did that give Paul reason to allow them as something good? No. 1 Corinthians 1.10, quote, now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. Does that sound like freedom of religion there? <laughs> Does it sound like Paul's endorsing diversity of opinion? Is he is he is he gonna tolerate diversity of opinion? Hmm. No, I don't think so. O'Malley states, quote, the, precious paragraph, the previous paragraph shows the great faith that Jefferson had in reason. He argues that the only thing necessary for truth to prevail is free reason. However, this view was not orthodox among Christians of his time. Many Christians then and now believe that men discover the truth of Christianity not because their own reasoning abilities led them to discover God, but because God revealed himself to them through the inspiration of the Holy Scriptures, end quote. Here we see the flagrant atheism of Jefferson's system. I have actually had people doubt me when I have asserted that the American system is ipso facto atheistic. How else is Jefferson to be read here? O'Malley states, quote, once a religion is established, men become hypocrites and join that religion because it will gain them political power and prestige, end quote. This is the same argument that was used against Rutherford in free disputation. Rutherford replies, quote, If, therefore, this argument be good, neither can the external preaching of the word be a lawful ordinance, for God only gives repentance. The preaching of the word without the spirit can but produce a carnal repentance. And the bounder may cry, may cry down all preaching of the word if he but change the word magistrate into the word preacher or ambassador. For this course of preaching by men may lay a stumbling, I speak in his words, in every man's way, to profane the things of God by doing them out of obedience to men that are but earthen vessels, not to God. If he say that it is by accident, because men look to men as men, and not to God, whose word men carry, so say I, men's abstaining from doing violence and murder, which the magistrate forbids, 
may infer God hath given no power to the command and abstain from murder because or have given no power to the magistrate to forbid murder and adultery for men may so profane the sixth command and abstain from murder because the magistrate forbids it not because God forbids it in the sixth commandment and the preaching of the word may hear may bear down errors so long as a man sound in the faith preaches but when there ariseth a corrupt teacher, a pharaoh that knew not Joseph, errors shall walk on every side, and that not by permission, but by commandment. Now this is the reasonless reason of the bounder against the coercive power of magistrates. These men argue ever from the abused power of a magistrate and from persecution to prove heretics ought not to be punished, as if punishing of false teachers were persecution, which they can never prove, end quote. It is very clear that Jefferson did not understand the Protestant, Protestant establishment principle and argued against a straw man in his writings that received civil ratification. The Statue of Virginia for Religious Freedom, drafted by Thomas Jefferson in 1777 and adopted by the General Assembly in 1786, quote, Whereas Almighty God hath created the mind free, that all attempts to influence it by temporal punishments or burthens, or by civil incapacitations, tend only to beget habits of hypocrisy and meanness, <laughs> and therefore are a departure from the plan of the holy author of our religion, who being Lord, both of body and mind, yet chose not to propagate it by coercions on either, as was in his almighty power to do, that the impious presumption of legislators and rulers, civil as well as ecclesiastical, who, being themselves but fallible and uninspired men, have assumed dominion over the faith of others, setting up their own opinions and modes of thinking, is the only true and infallible, and as such, endeavoring to impose them on others, hath established and maintained false religions, over the greatest part of the world and through all time, that to compel a man to furnish contributions of money for the propagation of opinions which he disbelieves is sinful and tyrannical. And here's a footnote. As the pluralistic American government has done every day of its existence and continues to do as, ev as does every government does, this is juvenile nonsense. My mandatory tax money is used to perform abortions and other insane and murderous institutions to this day that I despise. Okay, back to Thomas Jefferson. That even the forcing him to support this or that teacher of his own religious persuasion is depriving him of the comfortable liberty of giving his contributions to the particular pastor whose morals he would make his pattern and whose powers he feels most persuasive to righteousness and is withdrawing from the ministry those temporary rewards which, proceeding from an approbation of their personal conduct, are an additional incitement to earnest and unremitting labors for the instruction of mankind, that our civil rights have no dependence on our religious opinions any more than our opinions in physics or geometry, that therefore the prescribing any citizen as unworthy the public confidence by laying upon him by laying upon him an incapacity of being called 
to offices of trust and emolument unless he profess or renounce this or that religious opinion is depriving him injuriously of those privileges and advantages to which, in common with his fellow citizens, he has a natural right that it tends only to corrupt the principles of that very religion it is meant to encourage by bribing with a monopoly of worldly honors and emoluments those who will externally profess and conform to it, that though indeed these are criminal who do not withstand such temptation, yet neither are those innocent who lay the bait in their way, that to suffer the civil magistrate to intrude his powers into the field of opinion and to restrain the profession of pro- or propagation of principles on supposition of their ill tendency is a dangerous fallacy which at once destroys all religious liberty because he being of course judge of that tendency will make his opinions the rule of judgment and approve or condemn the sentiments of others only as they shall square with or differ from his own. And it is time enough for the rightful purposes of civil government for its officers to interfere with when principles break out into overt acts against peace and good order. And finally, that truth is great and will prevail if left to herself, and that she is the proper and sufficient antagonist to error, and has nothing to fear from the conflict, unless by human interposition, disarmed of her natural weapons, free argument and debate, errors ceasing to be dangerous when it is permitted freely to contradict them. Be it enacted by general assembly that no man shall be compelled to frequent or support any religious worship, place, or ministry whatsoever, nor shall be enforced, restrained, molested, or burdened in his body or goods, nor shall otherwise suffer on account of his religious opinions or belief, but that all men shall be free to profess and by argument to maintain their opinions in matters of religion, and that the same shall in no wise diminish, enlarge, or affect their civil capacities. And though we well know that this assembly elected by the people for the ordinary purposes of legislation only have no power to restrain the acts of succeeding assemblies constituted with powers equal to our own, and that therefore to declare this act irrevocable, would be of no effect in law, yet we are free to declare and do declare that the rights hereby asserted are of the natural rights of mankind, and that if any act shall be hereafter passed to repeal the present or to narrow its operation, such act will be an infringement of natural right, end quote. Full stop. Does the messianic establishment principle compel man to believe a certain religion or compel the mind of man by temporal punishments? Does the Protestant establishment principle compel men by force to attend public worship services? Rutherford denies them all. Americans need to reread Protestant history. It goes triple for the Presbyterians who have fallen for the same lies. John Robbins' lectures about government, economics, and religion have serious Anabaptist elements. Robbins frequently used Roger Williams' arguments against the establishment principle with 2 Corinthians 10.3 through 5, quote, The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. The following quotation from Rutherford cleans things up nicely. Rutherford says in his book, Free Disputation, Chapter 4, quote, The state of the question of compulsion of conscience and toleration. 
The question is not whether religion can be enforced upon men by the magistrate, by the dint and violence of the sword, or only persuaded by the power of the word. We hold with Lactantius that religion cannot be compelled, nor can mercy and justice and love to our neighbor commanded in the second table be more compelled than faith in Christ. Hence, give me leave to prove two things. Number one, that religion and faith cannot be forced on men. And number two, that this is a vain consequence. Religion cannot be forced, but must be persuaded by the word and spirit. Ergo, the magistrate can use no coercive power in punishing heretics and false teachers. For the first, we lay hold on all the arguments that prove the word preached to be the only means of converting the soul, begetting a faith in that carnal weapons are not able, yeah, nor were they ever appointed of God, to ding down strongholds, nor can they make a willing people. And Lactantius said, well... What is left to us if another's lust extort that by force, which we must do willingly, and that of Tertullian? It is of the law or right of man and of his natural power what every man worships, what he thinks he should worship, nor doth the religion of one either do good or do evil to another man. Nor is it religion to compel religion, which ought to be received by will, not by force." since sacrifices of worship are required of a willing mind, in which I observe, number one, Tertullian speaks not of the true Christian religion, which is now in question, but of religion in general, as it is comprehensive of both true and false religion. Because he speaks of that religion which by the law of nature a man chooseth, and is humani juris and naturalis potestatis, but it is not of the law of man or natural power, nor in flesh and blood's power to choose the true Christian religion. That election is supernatural faith. Tertullian there and elsewhere often, as also the scripture. John 6.44, Matthew 16.17, Matthew 11.25, 26, 27, and 2. Or, and number two, religion is taken two ways. One, for the inward and outward acts of religion as seen both the God and man, as Lactantius, Tertullian, and others say, so it is most true. Christians ought not with force of sword compel Jews, nor Jews or pagans compel Christians to be of their religion, because religion is not begotten in any by persuasion of the mind, nor by forcing of the man. Again, religion is taken for the external profession and acting and performances of true religion within the church or by such as profess the truth that are obvious to the eyes of magistrates and pastors, and thus the sword is no means of God to force men positively to external worship or performances. But the sword is a means negatively to punish acts of false worship in those that are under the Christian magistrate and profess Christian society insofar as these acts come out to the eyes of men and are destructive to the souls of these in a Christian religion. Tis even so, and not otherwise punishable by the magistrate, for he may punish omissions of hearing the doctrine of the gospel and other external performances of worship, as these omissions by ill example or otherwise are offensive to the souls of these that are to lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. Nor does it follow that the sword is a, is a kindly means to force outward performances. For the magistrate, as the magistrate does, not command 
these outward performances as service to God, but rather forbids the omissions of them as destructing to man. These are of a wide difference to kill blasphemers and false teachers for spreading heresies and blasphemies, and to compel them by war and fire and sword to be of our Christian religion. As I hope to prove, for the former is lawful, the latter unlawful. It's true, Lactantius speaks of all religion, true and false, that we are to compel none with the sword to any religion. But he nowhere saith that the magistrates may not kill open and pernicious seducers and false teachers who pervert others. For the magistrate is not to compel, yeah, not to intend the conversion of a pernicious seducer, but to intend to take his head from him for his destroying of souls. <laughs> That's right. And Lactantius denies religion after it is begotten, can be defended, that is nourished and conserved in the hearts of people by the sword, but by the word and spirit. Those are far different, tormenting in piety, saith he, nor can violence be conjoined with verity, nor justice with cruelty. Because the magistrate cannot, nor ought not, to compel evildoers, murderers, adulterers, robbers, liars, to be internally, peaceably, chaste, content with their own, as well as they must be such externally, no more than he can compel them to inward fear, love, faith in God, and to the external performances thereof. But it doth not follow that therefore the magistrate cannot command external acts of mercy, chastity, self-contentedness, and should not punish murder, adultery, theft, robbery, perjury. For to punish these makes many hypocritically peaceable, chaste, content with their own, true in their word, as well as punishing false teachers and heretics, maketh many hypocritically sound in the faith. So Augustine contra Petillion. End quote. All right, let's see. What do we got next? <clears throat> Looks like we're going to talk about the Constitution next. That'll be good. All right, I'm going to get a drink here, though. I'll be right back.
All right, I'm back. Sorry about that. So, closing some pop-ups on my computer. Okay, so the Constitution. Now, here's something that a lot of Christians hold to. They tend to hold the Constitution in high regard, as if it's somehow Christian or biblical, or which is uh, completely false, as I will demonstrate here. Constitution is absolutely unbiblical. <clears throat> Not absolutely, but for the most part. Um, <clears throat> okay, hold on. I'm messing with stuff on my computer. Okay. Okay, so American Christian Constitutionalists. Whenever someone like myself, who sees the inherent atheism interwoven into the American system, protests that the Constitution is anti-biblical, some Christian constitutionalist tries to defend America with appeal to states' rights. One such exchange was had between Andrew Sandlin and Reg Barrow. The Center for Cultural Leadership's Andrew Sandlin said, quote, It is because we no longer think in terms of state sovereignty that we make the mistake of assuming that the omission of mention of the faith in the federal constitution implies a secular intent on the part of the framers. Nothing could be further from the truth. It was largely because of intense religious belief that such an omission exists, end quote. Mr. Sandlin's view is erroneous. One, James R. Wilson shows that the content of the federal constitution was morally obliging upon those states that ratified it. In Prince Messiah's Claims, Essay 2, quote, One, the moral aspect of the constitution, the complexion of the United States constitution in this respect, strongly resembles that of all the 24 state constitutions. <laughs> Okay, hold on. I got to get back on talk shoe here. My computer restarted itself and closed all the browsers, all my windows I had open.
Okay. All right, so where were we? Um, were that remarkable instrument to be viewed in the mere light of a business transaction and not as a political sovereignty, perhaps all and more than all that has been uttered in its praise might be admitted. But it claims to be a true and proper civil magistracy. <clears throat> Some, indeed, have affected to regard it merely in the light of a business association, a partnership in trade, a mere treaty. The object of some who, honestly perhaps, say they view it in that light, is nullification, the elevation of the state sovereignties over the general government. The object of others is to flatter the occupants of power by apologizing in this way for the dishonor done Israel's God by refusing to recognize his claims on this land. The former are misguided politicians, the latter culpable ecclesiastics, quote, and his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven and did cast them to the earth, end quote. Revelation 12.4, quote, Let him that readeth understand, end quote. That this Constitution claims to found a true and proper political sovereignty appears from the following reasons. One, the convention was called and convened for the express purpose of forming a national government instead of the old confederacy. Under the old Articles of Confederation, Congress could legislate for states only and not for individual persons. In that respect, it resembled the Confederation of the Seven United Provinces, the Netherlands, and that of the Swiss cant cantons. This had been found inadequate. The Act of Congress recommending the call of the convention has these words, quote, Whereas experience hath evinced that there are defects in the present confederation as a mean to remedy which several of the states, and particularly the state of New York, by express instructions to their delegates in Congress have suggested a convention for the purposes expressed in the following resolution, and such convention appearing to be the most probable means of establishing in these states a firm national government, end quote. Resolved that in the opinion of Congress it is expedient that a convention of delegates be held for the express purpose of revising the Articles of Confederation and reporting such alterations and provisions therein as shall, when agreed to in Congress and confirmed by the several states, render the federal constitution adequate to the exigencies of government and the preservation of the Union. From all this, Mr. Madison argues, Federalist, number XL, page 211, that the convention assembled in order, quote, to form a national government. Two, the three great departments of a true and proper government into into the organization of the federal power, the legislative, the judiciary, and the executive. Three, by the Constitution, the people in the states, by the ratification of states, transferred to the federal magistracy all true and distinctive attributes of nationality, quote, no state shall enter into any treaty, coin money, and, quote, no state shall, without consent of Congress, lay any imports, end quote. Congress is vested with power to lay taxes, borrow and coin money, regulate commerce with foreign nations, establish a, uni a uniform rule of naturalization, secure copyrights, punish piracies and felonies, make war, raise armies, maintain a navy, 
and exercise exclusive legislation over such domains as are properly national. They have the power of life and death, which cannot be claimed without governmental authority. 4. Hence the people and all writers speak of the United States as the nation. No one ever says the nation of Pennsylvania, the nation of New York, etc. 5. All the best standard writers treat of it as a real government. Madison, Hamilton, and Jay wrote the Federalists to convince the people that the convention were justifiable in framing and that the condition of the Commonwealth require what the convention had framed, quote, a firm national government, end quote. Chancellor Kent, in his elaborate commentaries, affirms that the United States government, quote, is endowed with all the principal attributes of a true and proper political sovereignty, end quote. Now, if it is true that civil governments are bound to acknowledge, quote, the Lord and his Christ, end quote, and the United States have not done so, it will not avail to set up the defense that the federal constitution is a mere treaty. This apology was, indeed, made some years ago by a writer in Pennsylvania in reply to a very learned essay entitled, quote, The Sons of Oil, end quote by the Reverend Dr. Samuel B. Wiley, professor of languages in the Pennsylvania University. He might as well have pled that because the 12 tribes were confederated together under one government, they were on that account not bound as a confederated nation to acknowledge him that dwelt between the cherubim, end quote. Number two, the U.S. Supreme Court case, Cantwell v. Connecticut, 310 U.S. 296, 1940, number 632, argued March 29, 1940, decided May 20, 1940, states, quote, one, the fundamental concept of liberty embodied in the 14th Amendment embraces the liberties guaranteed by the First Amendment. Two, the enactment by a state of any law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof is forbidden by the 14th Amendment, end quote. The moral person of this nation has spoken clearly on this issue and has clearly rejected the crown rights of the Messiah, even at the state level. This is why the... Augensaw renovation of the National and Solemn League and Covenant, 1712, ordained at Philadelphia, 1880, by the Reformed Presbytery states, quote, The nations throughout Christendom continue in league with Antichrist and give their strength to the beast. They still refuse to profess and defend the true religion and doctrine, worship, government, and discipline, contrary to the example of the kingdoms of Scotland, England, and Ireland in the 17th century, in the days of the Solemn League and Covenant. Some of them have waged wars of conquest under pretense of opening a way for the spread of the gospel, and disregarding international law, have violated solemn treaties among themselves, and all of them practically disregard divine authority, habitually perform profaning the Christian Sabbath by carrying the mail, commercial traffic, and parties of pleasure on land and water, acknowledging the righteousness of divine judgment upon ourselves and others for manifold violations of God's law and breaches of our own and Father's solemn vows in our domestic, ecclesiastical, and civil relations. We desire to humble ourselves before God for these sins and for others not contained in this enumeration. 
seeing that God hath punished us less than our iniquities deserve, and hath left us a small remnant in his sovereign mercy, our prayer to him is that he may enable us by his grace to bring forth fruits meet for repentance to the glory of his great and holy name and the commendation of his pardoning mercy, end quote. God has appointed Messiah, King and Lord, over all nations. Psalm 2, Revelation 1-5. Yah commands all nations to worship him. Psalm 2, Isaiah 49-23, and Isaiah 60-12. He is our King, whether we acknowledge him to be or not. He earned it. The fact that our Constitution omits his kingship is indicative that this nation, from its inception, is a treasonous rebel against the Messiah. Its attempts to give lip service to God are outright pathetic. How can America deny in the First Amendment of the Bill of Rights establishment of religion and then assert the God of nature and the Creator who bequeaths inalienable, inalienable rights in the Declaration of Independence? When you speak of God and his operations, you are establishing a religion. This is completely incompetent. If you are at all familiar with my criticisms of the U.S. government, you will read me frequently point to the fact that the idea of a pluralistic nation came straight from the atheism at the foundation of the French Revolution. I point out frequently that the only hope for the Baptist religion was the success of atheist ideas. These ideas have been the bread and butter of the Baptist religion that is so dominant here in America. History of the English Calvinistic Baptists by Robert Oliver states, quote, Robinson shared Rylands and Turner's, all Baptist theologians, political views. He supported the American cause in the War of Independence and the French Revolution he was to describe as, quote, a truly wonderful work and interesting in every view, end quote. <clears throat> So here is the question. When and where does the French Revolution contact America? The answer is Thomas Paine and Thomas Jefferson. John Fisk, in his book, The American Revolution, Volume 1, page 173, states, quote, Thomas Paine had come over to America in December 1774 and through the favor of Frank, Frank Linhod secured employment as editor of the, quote, Pennsylvania Magazine. In 1776, Paine published his work, Common Sense, which Fiske himself admits is full of stupid and erroneous arguments, yet was fundamentally influential to the American Revolution. Paine also wrote The Age of Reason, which was a scathing criticism of Christianity and the unquestioned consensus of the establishment principle in the history of the Christian Church. He moved to France in the 1790s and was intimately involved in the French Revolution. The following is from Common Sense, addressed to the inhabitants of America, 4-5, to five, by Thomas Paine, with explanatory notice by J. Watson, 1848. In Watson's explanatory notice, he described the pretext and beginning of the American Revolution, quote, from the time that the commerce of the North American colonies became worth the notice of the British government, it was put under the most pernicious and absurd restraints for the supposed advantage of the mother country, and laws were occasionally passed here to regulate their internal affairs. 
In the war which preceded the peace of 1762, the colonists took a very decided part and greatly contributed to the conquests made from the French. Canada, which had been taken from that people, was retained by the British, and Florida was ceded to us by Spain. Thus secured from attack by foreign neighbors, Great Britain and her colonies were more than ever attached to each other. The Americans were proud of the land of their ancestors and gloried in their descent from Englishmen. This state of harmony was, however, of short duration. The unexampled expenses of the war required additional taxes to a large amount, and the difficulty this occasioned led the government in 1764 <coughs> seriously to contemplate the levying of taxes in the colonies. This was objected to by the colonists unless they were permitted to send representatives to the British Parliament. To this, the government would not consent, and a dispute commenced which ended in the separation of the two countries. Some, at least, if not all the colonies, contended that they possessed every legislative power not surrendered by compact, whilst in Britain it was contended on the part of the government that, quote, Parliament possessed the power of binding them in all cases whatever, end quote. The dispute became serious, but so contemptible was the power of the colonists considered in the eyes of the English government that in a debate in the House of Commons, General Grant, who should have known better, declared that, quote, with five regiments of infantry he would undertake to traverse the whole country and drive the inhabitants from one end of it to the other, end quote. This contempt was not only entertained by the government and its adherents, but by the people who were eager to compel their American brethren to submission by force of arms, against which the voice of a few wise men was of no avail. The colonists continuing to refuse the unconditional submission demanded, recourse was had to arms, and on the night of the 18th of April, 1775, they were attacked by the king's troops at Lexington, and here the first American blood was spilt by their English brethren. The Americans repelled the aggression, appointed George Washington commander-in-chief, and a desultory civil war desolated the colonies. The people were undecided in government and publicly declared their detestation, disapproved of resistance as useless, and few were disposed to risk their lives and property in a contest of which none appeared able to foretell the consequences. The doctrine of independence was a novelty hitherto but slightly advocated by its friends, and they, from the want of numbers and the timidity always attendant on newly started notions, were looked upon as rash and dangerous or treacherous and designing men, more deserving of suspicion and censor than of applause and imitation." End quote. Now, this is the point at which so-called Christian constitutionalists will start proselytizing their theory that Calvinistic Protestant principles began to be heralded as the salvation of the colonies. Rutherford and Junius Brutus's spirit is revived, and the echoes of the St. Bartholomew's Day massacre are heard once again. Is that what happened? Watson says, <clears throat> quote, it was in this crisis, this interval between fear and principle, that Thomas Paine, then unknown as a public character, published the pamphlet Common Sense. 
taking a broader and longer view than his contemporaries, seeing the inevitable consequence of submission, the probable result of a declaration of independence, correctly appreciating the reasons which could be urged on either side, and preeminently possessing the power of clearly stating what he strongly conceived, he addressed himself to the Americans in language which everyone could understand and none could successfully controvert. This remarkable and inestimable production may be described from the anathemas of the enemies of liberty. It has received the highest possible praise from the pen of Cheatham, one of Thomas Paine's most venal and shameless calumniators, who thus characterizes the work, quote, This pamphlet of 47 octavo pages, holding out relief by proposing independent and despairing people, Oh, hold on. I got a plug in my phone. Was published in January 1776. Speaking a language which the colonists had felt but not thought, its popularity terrible in its consequences to the mother country was unexampled in the history of the press. At first, involving the colonists, it was thought in the crime of rebellion and pointing to a road leading inevitably to ruin. It was read with alarm and indignation, but when the reader and everybody read it, recovering from the first shock, re-perused it, its arguments ravishing his feelings and appealing to his pride, reanimated his hopes and satisfied his understanding that common sense, backed by the resources and force of the colonies, poor and feeble as they were, could alone rescue them from the unqualified oppression which with they were threatened or with which they were threatened. The unknown author, in moments of enthusiasm which succeeded, was hailed as an angel sent from heaven to save from all the horrors of slavery by his timely, powerful, and unerring counsels, a faithful but abused, a brave but misrepresented people, end quote. <clears throat> When common sense arrived at Albany, the Convention of New York was sitting there, General Scott, a leading member, alarmed at the boldness and novelty of his arguments, mentioned his fears to several of his distinguished colleagues and suggested a private meeting in the evening for the purpose of writing an answer. They accordingly met, and Mr. McFesson read the pamphlet through. At first it was deemed necessary and expedient to answer it without delay, but casting about for the requisite arguments, they concluded to adjourn and meet again. In a few evenings they reassembled, but so rapid was the change of opinion in the colonies at large in favor of independence that they agreed not to oppose it, end quote. Dr. Gordon, in his History of the American Revolution, writes thus, quote, The publications which have appeared have greatly promoted the spirit of independency, but no one so much as the pamphlet under the signature of Common Sense, written by Thomas Paine, an Englishman. Nothing could have been better timed than this performance that has produced astonishing effects, end quote. Testimonies of this sort from friends and enemies could easily be multiplied, and proofs almost without end could be adduced to show how much the cause of mankind was promoted by Thomas Paine and thus assisting to lay the foundation of the American Republic, the example of which will in time be followed by every people on the earth. 
The principles maintained in common sense are applicable to all times and to all mankind. They should be carefully studied by everyone who is at all desirous to possess that information without which he must ever remain a slave at heart, end quote. Oh, the bitter reality of the so-called Jeffersonian Bible believer. It is a contradiction in terms. In typical Jeffersonian Christian constitutionalist form, Monty Collier argued for the Calvinistic roots in Thomas Paine's political theory. No, you did not misread me. I said Thomas Paine. He argued that long after Paine's work in Common Sense and the American Revolution, he then has a change of heart and attacks Christianity. True, Paine appealed to his Protestant audience to convince the Calvinists to make the same conclusion from Scripture as his deistic and atheist friends had from nature, namely the tyranny of divine right. Listen to what Thomas Paine says about himself since he was a young child, The Age of Reason, page 37. Quote, From the time I was capable of conceiving an idea and acting upon it by reflection, I either doubted the truth of the Christian system or thought it to be a strange affair. I scarcely knew which it was, but I well remember when about seven or eight years of age, hearing a sermon read by a relation of mine, who was a great devotee of the Church, upon the subject of what is called redemption by the death of the Son of God. After the sermon was ended, I went into the garden, and as I was going down the garden steps, for I perfectly recollect the spot, I revolted at the recollection of what I had heard, and thought to myself that it was making God Almighty act like a passionate man that killed his son, when he could not revenge himself any other way. And as I was sure a man would be hanged that did such a thing, I could not see for what purpose they preached such sermons. This was not one of those kind of thoughts that had anything in it of childish levity. It was to me a serious reflection arising from the idea I had that God was too good to do such an action and also too almighty to be under any necessity of doing it. I believe in the same manner to this moment, and I moreover believe that any system of religion that has anything in it that shocks the mind of a child cannot be a true system. <laughs> Hilarious. Only uh, the reasoning of a child could come to that conclusion. It seems as if parents of the Christian profession were ashamed to tell their Christ to, 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 to tell their children anything about the principles of their religion. They sometimes instruct them in morals and talk to them of the goodness of what they call providence. For the Christian mythology has five deities. There is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the God Providence, and the Goddess Nature. But the Christian story of God the Father putting his son to death or employing people to do it, for that is the plain language of the story, cannot be told by a parent to a child. And to tell him that it was done to make mankind happier and better is making the story still worse, as if mankind could be improved by the example of murder, and to tell him that all this is a mystery is only making an excuse for the incredibility of it. How different is this to the pure and simple profession of deism? The true deist has but one deity, and his religion consists in contemplating the power, wisdom, and benignity of the deity in his works, and in endeavoring to imitate him in everything moral, scientifical, and mechanical." End quote.
Don't let Monty fool you. Payne did not believe Christianity from the time he was a child. All right, I think I'm going to cut it off here, and I'll continue reading this next time. So, appreciate any listeners I might have had. And uh, I will talk to you guys later. All right, bye.